This is episode number 24 with keynote speaker and mental wellness advocate, Taylor Wesley. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. This episode is going to open up your eyes, your ears, and your hearts. Taylor is such an amazing young woman who battled with such a severe alcohol addiction at such an early age. Taylor, who is 24 years old, is currently almost five years sober. After almost being found dead, Taylor had no other choice than to choose sobriety. Was it easy? Hell no. Having to admit it to a bunch of people who are so much different than you that you are struggling so much at such a young age takes so much courage. Taylor talks about what it took for her to finally open up, to finally be vulnerable, and how that finally allowed her to begin the recovery process. Taylor talks about what it is about human connection that is so beneficial to anyone going through something in their life to help them through to the other side. Now, before we get into the episode, I want to talk about action steps towards becoming your best you. How can you actually work on becoming the best version of yourself? I know for me, my energy levels are everything. If I don't feel energized in the morning, afternoon, and evening, I can't coach the way I want to coach or be nearly as productive as I need to be. In order to have this high energy, I have to get to the gym and get the most out of my workouts. So that brings me to the question, are you always feeling tired? Do you feel that maybe you're not maximizing your time in the gym? If that's the case, feel free to message me about my one-on-one coaching platform to see how I might be able to optimize your time in the workout room so that you can reach your fitness goals and gain back your energy. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. If so, share it with a friend who might be going through something. Let this episode inspire you to open up, to be vulnerable, to speak out about whatever it is that you're going through with a loved one. Now, we want to make sure this message gets in as many ears as possible. So take a screenshot of the episode and tag me and Taylor on your Instagram stories. You never know who this episode might be able to support. But for now, it's time. It's time to work on being our best self today with the super inspirational Taylor Wesley. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I am super fired up for today's interview um, with Taylor Wesley. Uh, Taylor is a keynote speaker on mental health, and I've talked to one person who uh, I had one person on the podcast before who uh, went through addiction and went through the recovery and rehab process. So I'm excited to do it with somebody completely different. Uh, it was a male who's a 40 year old, and now I'm going with a female who's a good bit younger and experienced it a little bit earlier on in life. Um, so I want to just kind of start off today with going back with your story, you know, wh- where did, when was the point did you, that you realized that you were having a problem? Yeah. So, um, just to give a little background on my story, yeah. I am from Atlanta, Georgia okay. and grew up and actually didn't experiment much with alcohol, um, in high school, but I had underlying issues, um, mental health issues. I had anxiety disorder and PTSD from a car accident that I had gotten in. Um, and that was never fully treated. I remember growing up thinking that something was always off. Um, I couldn't focus. I couldn't, you know, carry conversations without voices running in my head. And when I got to college, it's when I first discovered alcohol. Um, and for me, it was very like zero to 100, um, with alcohol. It was my medication. It was my answer to everything. Um, I went from drinking and loving the feeling of it to then drinking, um, every day to being the one initiating it to blacking out every time I drank, um, and then to drinking every day, every morning. Um, and I felt really alone because I felt where I came from and my background that in my age, I was 19, like there's no way that I could be struggling with something like this. Um, and I was afraid to open up to people that I was struggling because, 
I tried to fix it myself and I thought I could do it myself. Uh, but the more I tried to fix it myself and the harder I was on myself, the worse and worse I got into my addiction because I continued to self-medicate and I got stuck in this vicious cycle, um, where you have this feeling of unworthiness and uncomfortableness and you want to get rid of it. So you self-medicate and then end up, you know, getting caught in those negative consequences, negative feelings, my anxiety heightened. Um, and I wanted to get rid of the feeling again. So I was caught in that cycle for about two years while I was at Auburn. Um, and I finally got to a point where the only answer was to reach out for help. Um, and I woke up, I remember on May 14th, 2000, May 17th, no, my dad's birthday, May 16th, 2014. Um, and my parents found me in my bedroom and I was close to death and my organs almost shut down. Um, I blew 0.02 BAC away from my body shutting down completely. And that's when I learned, like, it doesn't matter that I had failed out of Auburn University, basically, and gotten medical withdrawal, that I was back home under my parents' roof, and I didn't know what to do with my life, um, that this could end up taking my life. And so at that point, I wasn't really ready personally to get treatment, but I knew that that was the only option for me. And that the nurse asked, like, is this the first time it's happened? And my parents were like, no, this is like the fourth or fifth time. Um, so from there, I got sent to treatment. Yeah. Well, I'm interested in, and we'll get we'll get into kind of that specific situation here in a second, but I'm interested in the, the mental health battles that you were having prior to the alcohol addiction. Yeah. Because I think, I'm sure a lot of people, girls your age, or that age, probably experienced a similar thing. So what kind of was going through your head and what do you think led to the point where alcohol was the answer? Yeah. So... When I drank, I realized that like all of my anxiety went away. I didn't care what people thought about me. I didn't care about, you know, school. I didn't care about what I looked like. I didn't care about much of anything. And for once I felt present, like alcohol made me feel present and it made me feel like I was forming relationships with people. Um, when in fact I wasn't, I was doing it for selfish reasons because people drink, you know, it's a social thing. And like, I still, you know, believe in it, that it's a social thing. And, um, but for me, it was a little different and I have an allergy to it and I have a disease that I was born with. Um, I think that everybody, um, is different and I was predispositioned to have this. Um, and I just went over that line and ended up, you know, becoming an addict. I think that there's biological, like genetic and also situational, factors that contribute to whether or not, you know, you become an addict or are an addict. But I was born this way and a series of events that happened led me to this experience for a reason. Um, but it was definitely a self-medication because of that instant relief. Right. Um, because what I'm, were you self-medicating yourself from? Like, tell me the men, I know you said like you were in a car accident and you kind of had PTSD from that. Yeah. So tell me kind of what was Right before you drank, when you were having, you were so, when you were having this pain, you know, what was the pain that you were having and why did you feel that the only way to get rid of it was alcohol? The pain I was having was panic attacks. Um, I would have them about once a month, um, from a car accident that I was in. And when I had a panic attack, my body lost all control. Um, and it was, indescribable feeling. And I don't know how they come about, but it was usually when I was riding in the car. Um, and then also with the anxiety, 
it's hard to explain, but it's almost like a fluttery feeling 24 seven. And I could never be fully present. Like I said, and the anxiety was kind of taking over other areas of my life. And I felt like I wasn't good enough. Um, and I felt like this was like never going to go away. And alcohol was the only thing that took it away immediately. So if you were to go back and talk to yourself at that point in time where you were having those panic attacks prior to going to Auburn, what would the conversation be like to yourself in order yeah. to like prevent from prevent happening what happened? Yeah. So I'm really passionate about, um, you know, freshmen at college campuses because I kind of wish that I'd heard that when I was a freshman at Auburn. Um, so I actually spoke at convocation at Auburn university and it was to all the freshmen students. And it was about the importance of taking care of not only your body, but also your mind and your spirit and, um, making sure to reach out for help. And I think I would have told like a younger version of myself um, that it's okay to like not be okay. And it's okay to reach out for help. And it's okay that you're struggling right now. Like there is another way and um, trying to hide it from other people and trying to deal with it yourself is only going to end up worse off um, because the only way to actually get help is to reach out. Mm -hmm. um, and I was too prideful to reach out. So that's what I would tell my younger version of myself. Why, why do you think it is so hard for us to ask for help? Like I said, I mean, I think it's, it's pride. I think that it's fear of people judging you. I think it's, um, you know, we present ourselves in this way. And especially this day and age with social media, we try and make our lives look like they're all together and that there's nothing bad going on. And that we see that in other people. And we think that that's how life is supposed to be, but life has challenges and people go through things and it's not perfect. And some days aren't good, but we never post those on social media. We only right. post the good days. And, um, yeah, because I felt like I wasn't normal. I felt mm. like uh, nobody else struggled with it. I didn't hear about anybody else struggling with it really. And I thought that there was no solution. I kind of just gave up on it. And also I was just looking for instant relief too. Yeah. So, so let's go, let's fast forward to the, that point, May 16, 2014. Um, I can remember the date better than you. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, but let's fast forward to that point. Was that really the first point that you were like, okay, I need help or you were willing to, to take action? Like what was the process of in your head of like, okay, now's the time where I need to seek help? Yeah. So to be honest, that was the time that that was the only option for me because um, what I've learned in recovery is when you pick back up, it's where you left off. And if I were to pick back up, I would be dead. So um, it's just looking at it from that perspective. So, say that again. It's where you pick up is where you left off. Yeah. So talk about that a little drink, bit more. If I were to drink again, usually that means I'm going to pick up where I left off the last time I drank, which was in a hospital bed near death. And so I look at it that way. And I think about if I were to ever drink again, I wouldn't want to ever be in that spot. And I, I probably wouldn't be here today. Um, also I had to get to the point where that was the only answer and it was a life or death thing, but not everybody has to get to that point. And I'm thankful that I got to that point because it showed the severity of it instead of continuing to convince myself that I didn't have an issue. Um, it was like, okay, this is, this is an issue. But before there were signs and people had confronted me and my parents had confronted me and said like, Hey, your drinking habits are a little different, um, than what would be considered normal. And I just was kind of like, they don't know what normal is um, or, you know, they don't have any idea. Like only I know what's going on. Um, so I just kind of ignored it. And, you know, I was sick. Um, 
when you're in active addiction, you, you are dealing with a disease and you're in the midst of a disease. And now I'm in recovery. Yeah. Did you ever, did you feel a difference outside of yourself when you were going through this addiction problem? Like, did your relationships with other people change with your family change or anything like that? Yeah. Um, you know, my parents, they didn't want to really deal with me anymore. They, it's really hard for parents because, you know, I'm their child and they want to take care of me and they felt like they had done something wrong raising me. But I had to go through a lot of therapy with them for them to realize that it was nothing that they could have done differently. It was nothing that they did that caused it. Um, but my relationship suffered in all areas of my life, my relationship with my parents, my relationship with my friends, my friends didn't really want to go out with me anymore because I wasn't fun to go out with. Um, they were concerned about me, but at the same time, they're kind of fed up with it. And my parents, um, were kind of at a lot, like they didn't know what to do. My parents said it was the closest they've ever been though, because they came together, you know, as a unity and they were like, we need to do something to save our daughter's life. So. Okay. So May 16, 2014 happens. Then what? So I went to treatment. Um, I went to a treatment right, center. Basically right afterwards. I went to an IOP treatment center, which is intensive outpatient treatment. It's a day program. And I was with a bunch of veterans. They're like 50 and up. So I didn't really feel like I related to anybody. And when I thought of alcoholics or addicts, I thought of either homeless men under a bridge that were heroin addicts, or I thought of like old men that were in the basement of a church in an AA meeting. So that's why I had this like, you know, reputation that I've put around it just from word of mouth and movies and, you know, growing up. And so I get there and I'm like, this is what it is. And I didn't really, you know, open up much. I wasn't really like asking for treatment. I was just kind of like quiet and sat in the back. And so they went to me and they're like, we're, we can't have you here anymore. It's not good enough treatment. Um, and they sent me to an inpatient treatment center in Lubbock, Texas. So I went there for 45 days inpatient with just a suitcase. And, um, it was a big learning experience because I grew up and I was, you know, private school kid, went to college, was in a sorority, you know, at an SEC school, I was spoiled. And I get to this treatment center and I see, you know, people covered in tattoos and I'm very judgmental of them when I first got there. Cause I think that I once again, don't relate to them. Um, and they thought the same thing about me. Like people asked if I worked at the treatment center and stuff. And I was like, no. <laughs> um, but I, soon realized like it took a while. I was there for about 25 or so days and I've been just faking it. I was just trying to get out and I was like, I can't relate to these people. Like I just need to get through this and then I'll just go back to my normal life and everything will be good. But that wasn't the reality of it. Like I was there for a reason. And there's one day where I was sitting outside after dinner. Um, so we would get up and do chores every day and, um, we'd have groups during the day and I'd meet with a therapist one-on-one. And, um, after dinner, I was sitting outside and this man sat by me and he had been in jail and he like got straight out of jail and went to treatment. And he was like, I'm just so thankful to be here. And I'm like, how on earth are you thankful to be here? Like this place is terrible mm -hmm. and it's flat everywhere. Cause you're out in Lubbock, Texas. And, um, he was like, from where I came from, like, this is awesome getting to build relationships with other people and getting to relate with them. And these people here get me. And I was like, I just don't feel like anybody gets me at this point. And he was like, well, you haven't like asked for help yet. And this is when like my whole, my whole entire, like 
recovery started at this moment. I, it's a very, it's a moment I'll remember forever because he told me I hadn't reached out for help. And I thought again, like, that's why I've been struggling for so long. Cause I have been so prideful and I haven't been reaching out for help. And he was like, why don't you just try it? And so after that, I just started asking for help. I said, I'm not okay. I'm miserable. I don't know how to stop drinking. I don't know what's wrong with my mental health and I need help. And once I asked for it, people started, you know, being there for me. Who did you ask? Um, Other people in my groups. I remember Mm -hmm. like one time in group, I just finally got vulnerable and I was just like, I'm miserable. And that's like the best reaction I've gotten from people. They're like, I'm glad that you finally are admitting like that something's wrong because like if nothing's wrong, why are you here kind of thing, you know? So um, after that, I started gaining advice and help from other people. My therapist, I started working through things. I started learning how to love myself again. I started learning how to take care of myself again, taking care of my body, you know, exercising again, eating well, um, taking care of my mental health. I got on anxiety medication. I saw a therapist. working with groups, you know, forming relationships with people at the treatment center and relating to them and realizing that it doesn't matter where you come from, what your background is, what you look like, what your age is, that we all have a similar problem and we're all here together for a reason. And the only way that we can, you know, get out of it is to work together with one another as a team and as a unit. And so I started, you know, looking at it that way. Was there any one particular thing that you had to get out like is there there any one particular story or one particular experience that you were having such a hard time being vulnerable with and communicating with others that really helped a big release or helped like you find clarity yeah i think that the biggest thing for me was admitting how i felt before i started drinking and admitting those dark times when i would drink in the morning um and admitting how much I was drinking um, because we did a survey when we went in there and I lied on it. And then Mm -hmm. like when I finally started getting vulnerable about stuff and honest with myself and with other people, that's when I felt the relief about like what was actually going on about what I was actually struggling with and about the reason that I was drinking was because I was feeling this malady that I felt and I felt like I didn't have a purpose and I felt like I didn't know what I wanted to do. And to me, alcohol was just taking a pause on that and letting me be present because I was always worried about like, am I good enough for my family? Am I good enough for myself, my friends? I'm very competitive. And so when I felt like I wasn't enough, that's when I was like, I just want to forget about all of it. Um, so you know, realizing that I felt that way and admitting I felt that way is when I finally could, you know, start to, to grow and build. Okay. Gotcha. So basically being able to open up, be vulnerable, you know, starts that recovery process. Like, like you said, that's like the yeah. first point where recovery almost yeah. kind of started. So after that, what were the next kind of like steps that you took or lessons that you learned that helped you along the way to eventually lead you to where you are today? I guess? Yeah. So I think that for me, treatment was crucial. And I think that, you know, it's different for everyone. I think recovery is different for everyone. The, you know, way that you go about your recovery, it's, it's different because everybody has a different experience. But for me, I needed to get out of my people, places, things. And being out in Lubbock was like the best thing for me. Um, going through the full 
length of treatment. I went 45 inpatient. I went 30 days outpatient and I did sober living for three months. And while I was in sober living, I had the opportunity, you know, I got lucky. They placed the treatment center out by Texas Tech University and I went to Texas Tech for a semester. Mm -hmm. And Texas Tech has the biggest collegiate recovery community in the U.S. And they are the first of its kind. And there I realized like, kids can do college sober, like, and these are normal people that I would be hanging out with and they're awesome. And they have different stories and they come from all over the U S and so it was a safe place for me. Like in between class, I would go to the collegiate recovery community and I would hang out and meet people and learn about how they're doing school. Cause I had to learn how to do school again. And, um, what's the I recovery have- program called? The Collegiate Recovery Collegiate, okay. Collegiate yeah. Program. Yeah. And it's at Texas Tech University. Mm-hmm. And so they, what's really cool too is like, I was lucky coming from a family that, you know, were willing to pay for school, but a lot of people don't come from that. And if they're dealing with addiction, like they may not have any money, they may not have a home. A lot of people were homeless and, um, this Collegiate Recovery Community gives people a second chance and you can get a full scholarship for being sober for a year. So like people that I saw that had never been to school had this opportunity to get sober and then build a life for themselves and build a career and get their, you know, undergrad their master's and then end up being a counselor or honestly doing whatever they wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that was incredible seeing that. And I think that meeting people and learning their stories too, it uh, humbled me a lot and it made me realize that like, I can do this and I can't do it alone, but I have other people who are going through similar things that uh, can go through it with me. So. Gotcha. Cool. What do you think it is about like having a collegiate recovery program? People go together to go to rehab. Like what is it, what is it about community that helps people so much in terms of like avoiding going through addiction or recovering from it? Yeah. So the opposite of addiction is connection. That's Mm. something I learned. And I don't think it's just addiction either though. I think the opposite of just like isolation, I think the opposite of feeling alone and the opposite of, you know, mental illness is connection and it's reaching out to somebody else because you're caught in your own head. And, um, so the importance of community was something that I learned out there and I learned it through my own, you know, experience and, um, from people telling me that that was how they got through it. A big thing was I looked for people who had been sober for a while and I looked for mentors and I asked them like how they did it. And they said, I had a community around me so that when I was struggling, I could go to them and ask them for advice and, I could have somebody to confide in and I could, you know, get outside of my head when I was feeling, you know, that isolation and feeling alone. And what I used to do was drink, but now I can reach out to other people. So it's almost like reaching out to something greater than yourself is really all you need Mm -hmm. in order to get out of your head. And I still use that. Like I still struggle to this day. I struggle each day, like recovery, you start over each morning, you get up. And so if I'm ever feeling uneasy or, hard on myself, I have to use one of those, you know, coping mechanisms and get outside of myself. What, what, what when you say coping me- mechanisms, what are you specifically? Yeah. To? So I focus a lot too on like holistic wellness. Um, and some people might see that differently, but 
I think that in order to take care of your mind, you have to take care of your body as well. I'm sure you, you know, that. <laughs> of course. and so I make sure to take care of my body. And if I'm feeling anxious, I, I go on a run or I try and have, you know, a good meal and, or I'll go out to dinner with people. That's like the best thing. And, um, also I'll try and I'm bad about meditating. I need to be better about that. My dad's really good about it. He meditates like every morning. It's so funny. He uses that calm app or whatever <laughs> and he'll send us quotes off of it. But, um, I, instead of meditating, I usually will just like call somebody or I'll call mm-hmm. a mentor. I still keep in touch with my counselor that was out in Lubbock too. Yeah. I have a therapist here that yeah. I see. Okay. So, so basically, I, what I'm hearing is basically making sure that you're taking care of yourself first. Yeah. More than anything else. Well, you can't take care of other mechanism. people unless you're taking care of yourself. It's like the oxygen mask. And mm-hmm. I learned that. I've honestly learned that recently working in the industry um, because I'm helping a lot of other people who are in that dark spot. But it's like I can't be of service and help other people if I'm not taking care of myself first. Right. So it's it's almost I thought at first like I don't deserve this it's selfish but it's like it's necessary it's it's the least selfish thing you can do right gotcha so how, how long have you been sober now almost five years almost five years yeah. awesome well congrats on Thanks. that um, but being sober for five years now and having and being in the industry and having been around a lot of people who have come through the other side of it um, you know you mentioned community but is there ever is there another maybe one commonality amongst the people who have kind of come on the other side of addiction and kind of using it as a great thing that happened to them and as a benefit that they all have in common yeah um, besides outside of maybe yeah. just community yeah so something I learned too is that I think especially for young kids um, getting sober young you think like your life's over and I thought my life is over because I literally only knew like how to go out and drink and that was fun for me and And so I was like, I'm never going to be able to do anything fun again, but there's so many different ways. And I think that people wouldn't still be sober today if sobriety wasn't a good, like good thing. And it wasn't a fulfilling thing. And that you don't have to lock yourself in a room and not go out in the world and experience the world just because you had this problem and you're in recovery and you're still treating it. It's like, if I'm just self-aware when I'm out um, doing things and I am strong in my own recovery, like you can do anything you put your mind to. And my counselor told me that. And that's what stuck with me when I was finishing my time at Texas Tech. I was really fearful because I felt like I didn't want to be stagnant and not do anything with my life and just stay out there just because it was safe. I felt for once like strong in my own recovery and I wanted to challenge myself, but I still dealt with that fear of if I challenge myself, am I having the wrong motives? Am I going to relapse? Like, you know, is a alcohol going to like chase me everywhere, but no, like if you're strong in your recovery and if you're like with, you have a good community and a good support system, like you can do anything. And so I had the option and I ended up returning to Auburn university, my second semester, junior year. And a lot of people were like really fearful. They're like, that's a terrible idea. You're going back to like where you're struggling. But to me, it was more so like I wanted to make a living amends to myself to finish school there. And I was able to finish school there in four and a half years. And so to me, it was almost like that was the best thing I could have done because I was able to like prove to myself that I, I could do this and I could do anything I put my mind to if I am living a life of recovery and that you don't have to hide and you don't have to be fearful and that you don't have to like not, 
I go to concerts all the time. I go, I go out with my friends to the bars all the time. And people like think that that might be weird. And I think it's, it's whatever you're comfortable with. It's gauging what you're comfortable with and making sure you know that. And I always will have my car out with me. So if I feel uncomfortable, I can go home. Um, but having fun and, and living, you know, I live a more normal life than I did when I was ever drinking mm-hmm. and realizing that because people feel like when they get sober, they're dealing with that, that they're so different. Yeah. And the best advice I got was like, you're not special. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, but I thought I was special growing up. Cause like I was dealing with all this crap, but it's like, no, like there are people, everyone has their stuff. It's just a different looking for everyone. Yeah. And so that was my stuff. And mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. Well, I want to I want to stick with the this being sober thing because, like you said, you thought how how could I ever live life being yeah. sober? And I think a lot of people probably have that idea. Like, there's no way I could just never have a drink again. But I want you to talk to somebody who thinks maybe you know maybe I kind of have a problem, but like maybe not. I'm not really sure. There's no way I could ever stop drinking entirely. Like, what are you going to say to what do you say to the person who's like, there's no way I can completely cut out drinking from my life? Yeah. So a really good advice that I got once, and I wish I could remember where, but I've seen quotes about it too, is I would rather go through the rest of my life believing that I am an addict, an alcoholic, and not be than living the rest of my life trying to convince myself that I'm not. And I think that if you get to a certain point where you feel like you're just continuously trying to convince yourself that you're not and something's missing and you're not living a fulfilling life and you think that there might be a different way that you should give it a try. And mm-hmm. I think that a lot of people who have given it a try have seen light. And there are a lot of people who don't make it because they think that it's too hard or they think that they aren't capable, but anybody's capable of it. It doesn't matter where you've come from. Um, it's really just whether you want it or not. And like I said, from the beginning, like I'm really lucky because I didn't have that like, Oh, maybe it's like, I, I don't think I would be here today and I really don't deserve to be here today. Um, so I got this second chance and I'm going to make the most of it. Um, and to me, like, I, I don't see the value in, in drinking anymore. I think that it's different because I think that like I, all my friends drink and like, I think that they can, should do whatever makes them happy. And like, if that's good for them, then that's what they're doing. And I'm still going to hang out with them. I'm not going to judge people for that. Mm -hmm. You know, that's another thing is that people who are in recovery should never be judgmental of people who still drink because everybody lives their own lives. And if you're okay with yourself, then you shouldn't have a problem with somebody else. I'm not jealous of people. I'm not angry or resentful towards people. I'm just doing what's best for me. Mm -hmm. So you said that, you know, some people give it a try and don't end up fulfilling and staying sober, that sort of thing, and because it's tough. Um, yeah. But what do you think? I know you, you said kind of that, you know, you didn't feel like you deserved to be here and you were so lucky to be here. Was that kind of your main motivation to stay sober? Like, what is the main motivation to continue going throughout life sober? At first, that was my main motivation yeah. because I was like, I um, this could kill me. But then after that, it was like, whoa, I'm starting to get better and my mental health is better. And it was making my mental health worse. And it's like, I've learned this new lifestyle where I'm continuously working on my mental health. My mental health's not perfect all the time by any means. My life's not perfect now by any means, but I know different ways to go to deal with it. And I don't want to give that up because it's been so fulfilling and I've been able to use it for the good of other people. And I think that's another thing is like, 
I lost my anonymity and I started sharing my story with other people. And I realized that that was the only way I could go back to Auburn and, you know, be sober if, because if my motivation was to not tell anybody and to keep to myself, I would end up back where I was. Mm -hmm. So I think also the anonymity thing, people can do what they want with that. I think everybody has a right to do what they want with that. Um, and for me, it just looked a little different because I was in a public speaking class at Texas Tech and I was like, I'm going to give this a shot and like see what people think of, you know, me being in recovery. And so I was like, listen, I'm in sober living down the road. Like I have a curfew of 9 p.m. and I've been sober for like four months and I just like, like word vomit. Right. And in that class of 20, I had like three students come up to me and tell me that they related to my story. Oh my and so that's when I realized like, this is not just me. This is like so many other people. And I learned that one in four people struggle with mental health, which means that if you know more than four people, you know, somebody that has, if you haven't yourself personally. So I was like, so many people are struggling with this and nobody's talking about it because everybody's making their lives look you know, perfect. Mm -hmm. And it's making them struggle worse. The more I tried to convince other people I was fine, the worse off I was. Um, so yeah, I was like, well, I'm just going to be vulnerable and tell people that like my life's not perfect and I'm not perfect and I messed up and that I went through this and there's another way. And if maybe I show people there's another way that they'll know about resources and be able to reach out for help, because that's what I wished I heard as a freshman was like, that there are people that struggle mm -hmm. and but you're so, not alone. yeah. And that like, not everybody has everything together. Mm -hmm. Like I, I basically failed out of Auburn and people thought that I had everything together, but I didn't. And then even after, like when I got back to school, just staying vulnerable with people, like I deal with perfectionism a lot. So staying vulnerable and real, like the people in the recovery communities keep me like, keep me, on that level, yeah. I guess you could say. No, I think I do think that, I mean, you touched on the statistic of one in four people struggle with something in mental health. And I think that it's so more and more prevalent nowadays because of things like social media and TV and so much online where everybody's portraying the best version of themselves or the happiest version of themselves that they will. And people don't realize that all of these people are, are struggling too. And, yeah. and it gives us the notion that thinking being unhappy is somehow wrong. Like, yeah. We think like, I, I literally touched on this the other day with somebody. I was like, I know that I've had the thought myself when I'm not happy, I'm thinking what's wrong with me. It's yeah. like, it's okay to not be happy 100% yeah. of the time. And I think that people need to be able to realize that and communicate that with each other. And I think that's like just the number one reason why it's one in four and not one yeah. in 10, one in 20 and that yeah. sort of thing. And why it's more and more prevalent nowadays. Um, but a question I want to ask is, and it doesn't have to relate to rehab or recovery or anything in particular, but what's the most uncomfortable thing that you've had to do, whether it's rehab or whether it's currently with what you're doing or anything like that? Gosh, that's a hard question. I'm going to have to think about this one. Okay. I mean, uh, and I, I felt like in my head when you talked about finally being vulnerable in the rehab group saying like, I'm miserable was yeah. probably a pretty uncomfortable um, thing to have to admit, but I'm sure the rest of the rehab and recovery process wasn't smooth sailing either. No. So I don't know if there was any I one particular that, thing that was super uncomfortable that you can. I think back that to. the biggest thing that I think is uncomfortable for me and that I still struggle with now is that I'm promoting mental health and wellness and I'm there's days I'm struggling. And so, like I said, staying vulnerable through all of that and it, you know, 
having people know that I am human and that even though I'm promoting this and like I'm promoting mental wellness and like feeling good about yourself and, um, reaching out for help to other people, I have to show that like, I not only like came from a dark place, but like it, life isn't always perfect either. Like just because I'm sober doesn't mean like my life is smooth sailing now. Like I still deal with challenges. And I think the biggest thing for me is like, cause I had this platform and people were looking up to me and I felt like, you know, after the Miss Homecoming campaign, I had to, to have it all together cause people were looking at me and articles were being written and I was being interviewed for these things. And I was like, Whoa, like I'm having a really bad day today and I have to act like I'm, you know, mm. all dandy. So it's just being consistent with that. Yeah. Almost feeling like if almost feeling like an imposter syndrome, almost like if I'm going to talk about it, then I can't have these sorts of yeah. negative feelings yeah. myself, yeah. but I do. And just yeah. being open about that. Yeah. So, and I've noticed that when I am vulnerable about that and when I do open up about that, I get a way better reaction. Mm-hmm. I mean, vulnerability breeds vulnerability. So that's something I learned. Gotcha. So now you're going around and and speaking about this kind of thing yeah. to different groups and, and things of that nature. What is your biggest communication? So are you talking to people who are currently, you're are, are not currently going through this necessarily, right? It's like no, it's people just who, everybody. Okay. So it started at Auburn when I first got back to school, they had a mental wealth week and it was a week to raise awareness for mental health. And I hadn't told anybody I was going through any of that yet. I had just gone back to school and I was trying to figure out how I was going to do this. I felt really alone. And I was like, this is what I need to use what I learned at Texas Tech and reach out. So I went up to them after and I was just like, what can I do to help? And they were like, just keep showing up. We have like no kids here, like showing up, just sit here in the mm-hmm. audience. So I kept showing up and I kept showing up and I would show up to just anything and everything that was raising awareness for mental health or recovery. I joined the Auburn recovery community, became their community outreach coordinator. I joined SGA. I became the health and wellness director where a big initiative was to help student counseling services on Auburn's campus. Cause they had the highest suicide rate that they had in forever and a waiting list um, of 300 students. So I was like, all right, there's a problem on college campuses. Like we need to address it. And maybe I can be a way to help them because I learned so much at a school that provided so much and Auburn like cared about their students and they wanted to do that. But I joined a task force, a mental health task force. And then from there was when the Miss Homecoming campaign happened. I got nominated for Miss Homecoming and five of us put on a campaign. Um, and that's where my communication came about. Uh, when I was in treatment, my mother sent me a quote that was painted on a mural and it said, if you take the eye out of mental illness and replace it with we, it creates the word mental wellness. And it stuck with me because I was like, that is literally everything I've learned is that community. And if you have a community supporting mental health, the people who feel isolated and alone won't feel so alone anymore. And they probably will be more inclined to reach out because they know that there are people there that care about it. But if nobody's talking about it, if everybody's acting like everything's together, then everyone's going to hide under closed you know, doors. And it made me think about just like that freshman kid, like in a dorm that felt alone and felt like he didn't have anybody else to talk to. And he was getting to the point where he didn't know what else to do. And I was like, I don't want anybody to feel that way. Right. And I know I'm just one person, but if I can get other people to join and, and I know that other people are passionate about this because I've seen it happen when I have opened up, people relate. Like that was another thing. It's not just me. People relate. I've heard so many other stories of people relating. Like my story isn't any different or any more special than anybody else's story. Um, 
everybody has one. And so if I got more people to open up about their stories, that's when it could become a community thing. Mm -hmm. And that's when more and more people would join and the whole entire, you know, university as a whole would support it and raise awareness for it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that that was going to kind of actually touch on my next question. You know, you said you were going to these meetings and like no one was showing up, right? But you kept going, kept going, kept going. And probably no one was showing up because it's, it's hard to even just show up because you're admitting to yourself and to other people that like, I kind of have a little bit of a problem here. Yeah. Um, So, and what I was going to ask is how do we urge people to actually show up and like, it's easy to say, just like go and like be open, but to actually like urge somebody to take action, to actually go, like, how do we do that? Is it by raising awareness and telling your story so that other people like kind of relate to it? The impact I've seen, the biggest impact I've seen through all of this is personal connection and personal stories. And I think that there's a big part of it is communication, people just knowing about it going on, but for people to have a passion for it, the biggest thing I saw was during my campaign when students would share personal stories. Mm-hmm. Um, the more people that share and become vulnerable, the more people want to join because they have a connection to it. So it's a domino effect, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I saw it like that. Um, and I didn't want it to be about me anymore. I wanted it to be about other people. So that's why it was spread wellness with Wesley. Um, and it was all about that word we and what we truly means like, we is like talking about ourselves. So we have a responsibility to look out for one another and we have a responsibility to, you know, help those people who might feel alone right now. So when it's like an entity as a whole, that's when a change is made. Mm-hmm. You can't make a change on your own. Yeah. Gotcha. So that's something I learned too. It's like, I'm not going to do anything just by sharing my story alone. It's like getting other people to, to join me. And so that was really cool. And the speaking really just started from that. Um, I remember, you know, when I, the homecoming game after the campaign had happened, so many students had joined and we had raised money and I got to carry my first sobriety chip I picked up and my dad was walking with me across the field. And, um, you know, he told me he was so proud of me and I, it was a representational of, you know, other people carrying me across the field and looking at the stadium and the other students who are there not supporting me, but supporting mental health, addiction recovery, um, and just the student body. And so that's when I realized like, this is great. I can pass this on to somebody mm-hmm. else now. So, all right. So now you go and do public speaking, like I said, at these different yeah. places, how did you kind of get started into it? And well, not necessarily how did you get started, but was that naturally easy for you to start talking in front of people or was it super uncomfortable or what was that like? I still don't like public speaking really, which is really (laughs) funny. Like I'll say that I was so, I mean, I have anxiety. Like I was not good at it at all, but, um, I, when I think about like the reason I'm speaking, um, when I do have an engagement and like the one person I want to impact, that's when all the other people go away and it's not really a crowd anymore. It's like, I'm speaking to one person. If I can just touch one person, that's all that matters. So that's what I think about when I'm speaking. And Mm -hmm. it's like, I'm having a conversation and I don't know if it flows, but like for some reason I'll speak and somebody will hear it in the audience and they'll resonate with it. And that's all that really matters. And maybe they'll make a change because of it. Maybe not, but taking that chance and it's an opportunity to not use just like social media, but it's like I'm there in person in front of a large amount of people. So I'm reaching the biggest amount of people I possibly can, but in person. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how I see it. I'm like, okay, I get to be in front of them in person, 
but I get to not just on, over the phone, not over email. Like I'm speaking to the biggest amount of people I can to spread the message. And then they can do that as well. It's like, I hope that from that audience, there can be one person that can help that domino effect. Um, and from there, really with the speaking, it was a domino effect. Like people would hear me. Um, like I spoke to a bunch of police officers and it was in higher education and they asked me to speak at their high schools. I would speak at one college and then another college would hear about and ask me to speak. I would get featured in an article and somebody would hear about it. I've never once like really reached out for my own speaking gigs. It's more so I speak about once a month and it's just from word of mouth or people hearing about it from somebody else who'd heard my speech. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a website, but then I get people can message me on there like they can ask for me to, to speak somewhere, but that's happened a few times. It's mainly through word of mouth. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give you a second to, you're probably not going to like it, but I'm going to give you a second to toot your horn real quick. Um, why do you think that people want, like a lot of people have wanted you to come speak? What is it about oh, your God. message that makes it unique <laughs> that make it so they want you to speak to their group or whatever it is that it is? I don't know. I think like I said, it's just because um, I'm just having a conversation. I think that I'm not putting on a show. I'm being vulnerable and I'm being real and I'm not, I'm not necessarily like tooting my own horn when I'm speaking. I'm talking about like the dark parts. And I think that makes people feel like you create a connection with somebody when you're vulnerable. And so me being vulnerable to an entire group of people, I'm creating a connection with them at that moment. And I think that that's why people remember it and they, you know, other people want me to hear that message. So they're like, you got to hear this message mm-hmm. and, you know, hear this girl speak. Um, and I think that that idea of the eye to we, that it's not even really about me speaking. It's more just spreading the message. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I like that. I think it is. I mean, I think like you probably, most of your speeches are probably almost storytelling more than anything else. And I feel yeah. like a lot of people probably always resonate with that sort of thing much more than someone just kind of like teaching to saying to them like yeah. don't do this don't do that so that's i'm of no thing. expert i'm <laughs> not i'm not a counselor i didn't go to grad school i almost did prediction counseling and then i was like this is too much for like what i've been through um it's more just like i'm a message carrier yeah. that's what i carrier that's what <laughs> i um see myself as is yeah. i literally carry the message and i'm doing that in my job right now as well uh, so I'm not only speaking, but I'm also carrying the message of, you know, what I learned at my treatment center and I'm just showing people that. And that's why they wanted me to come on as business development for the ranch of Dove Tree, um, because they simply want me carrying the message that, you know, this is a treatment center that helps young adults. It helps young adults at a very vulnerable stage in their life where they don't necessarily know what they want to do. And it's helping them find directions, helping them have the second chance of life and finding purpose. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm a message carrier. Yeah. Well, and I think an important part for you to know and for a lot of people to know is that just because you don't you didn't go to school for it or you don't have a degree in it or anything like that doesn't make you um, – not able to speak on that sort of thing. I think that anybody who's gone through crap or experienced something, that's enough credential to be able to, you know, talk about it from your own point of view. Yeah. As long as you talk through your own experience and because you've actually gone through it yourself. Yeah. Like, I think that's enough credential outside of needing a degree. So I think that you need to realize that to give you confidence to speak to others. And I don't know if you even need it, but I think a lot of people need to realize that like, you don't need a piece of paper to be able to say that you can do certain things. And I've noticed this too, that 
kids, especially in like high school, they don't want to hear a police officer come in and say like, don't drink, don't do drugs. It's like, no, like everybody has a choice to do whatever they want, especially when they get into college. So it's like, why not just be educated on it? And that's what really when prevention truly happens is when you're educated on it on that different level, not like you're going to get in trouble or arrested. It's more like this could potentially happen. This is dangerous. And you just need to know, be aware of this when you are making decisions. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So down to the last two questions. I always ask the same last two. Uh, And the first one, I always throw out the age number. So how old are you currently? I'm 24. I'm almost 25. 24, almost 25. Awesome. So obviously you got goals, things you want to accomplish, things you want to create, um, people you want to speak to, that sort of thing, messages you want to get across. 10 years down the road, 34, almost 35, Taylor Wesley, what what have you done? What have you accomplished? And what are you currently doing? One day at a time. That's a big thing for a company to say one day at a time. I don't know, because I never had a huge goal when I started the speaking. I I never even wanted to be a public speaker. And this just happened before my eyes. And I never wanted to be like, you know, open about my recovery at Auburn and it to like be this thing. And it just happened anyways. And I think that everything's just happening for a reason. And I think that I'm just going to let it continue to carry me. And I think that you should have goals and you should have aspirations. And I think that my main goal is to continue working towards being a message carrier and spreading the message of raising awareness for mental health and showing people the importance of community around mental health, um, that you can't do it alone. Uh, and the more that I keep that, um, as my main, you know, mission statement, I guess as your foundation, I love like mission statements and stuff. And that really keeps like your morals intact and keeps you from straying away. I've kept that mission statement and it's just kind of led me from there. Okay. So keeping that mission statement, you know, not to get too consumed in myself, but to continue just working towards the goal of other people getting involved in this and simply raising awareness. I think that other stuff will happen from that. Um, I'd love to, you know, continue speaking. I think it's awesome. I'd love to continue growing that business, whatever it looks like. Um, But I want other people to join me too. I feel, you know, like I don't want to just be alone. And that's the whole thing. And then um, I love working in the behavioral healthcare industry. I've learned like so much. And I want to keep helping kids get into treatment. That's my job now is I'm helping talk to families and get their kids into the doors of treatment, uh, finding people at their most vulnerable stage when they feel like there's no other option, um, being like, it's okay, there's another way, and there's plenty of other options, uh, but this is one of them, and I can be a resource to people. So that's cool. Like, now I get to represent a resource as well. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And before I ask the last one, um, I want to acknowledge you first for for being able to finally, 25 days in or however many days in, to be courageous to the point where you are finally vulnerable and you finally opened up. And now to the point where, you know, like you said, you didn't choose the the public speaking life or you didn't even necessarily want it to get to where it is today, but you're still willing to be, go out there and be vulnerable. And one thing I talked, we talked about in my episode with Michael Brody Waite, who was the guy who also went through um, addiction rehab recovery process is one thing that he really touched on a lot was you can't keep what you don't give away. And he talked about how talking with other people who are going through what he went through 
helps him be engaged in the process because he talked about how you're never fully recovered. There's always the yeah. possibility for you to relapse and that sort of thing. And he's 16 years out and he still talks about that. Yeah. Um, but because he continues to give it away and you continue to tell your story, it gives, it keeps you engaged in the process and it keeps you safer and safer, if you will, from maybe a relapse. So yeah. I just want to acknowledge you for continuing to be open Thanks. and vulnerable to tell about your story. Yeah. Um, but uh, I want you to have everybody support you as much as possible. So where can they find you on uh, social media, online and all that good stuff? Oh gosh. Yeah. So <laughs> my Instagram is Taylor Wesley wellness. And then my website is Taylor Wesley.com. Okay. And so anybody can find me on social media. Um, my website has more in depth of my story. You can look at some of my old speaking gigs that I've done testimonials. And also if you want to contact me, there's a contact tab and yeah. you can write a message message and I'll just shoot me an email and Any, I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Okay. Anything that you're currently working on that's uh, going to be I have a lot of gigs soon? coming up this month. A lot month. of gigs? Yeah. Okay. So I'm really excited. Awesome. Um, I'm speaking at a couple of high schools in February. I'm speaking at a conference in February. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty booked up for this month. So yeah. just like prayers that... That's it all awesome. goes smoothly. Yeah. Tell yeah. your story. Get it out there. Well, yeah. the last question I always ask people is... I talk about how I think we're all on this journey of life and it looks different for everybody, but we're all having the common goal of becoming the best version of ourselves. And I think it's a constant journey. I don't think we're ever at that best version, no. um, but we're always trying to improve just a little bit each and every day um, and magnify whatever it is that makes us unique. Yeah. And so what I want to ask for you personally is if you could do or work on three things to get closer to the best version of yourself, what are those three things that you could do or three things that you could work on? three things. So I think still, like I kind of talked about before is, you know, I have a problem with perfectionism and always being hard on myself to be better and better and better. And I think that to be the best version of myself, like, or work towards that is really loving myself in the process of it. Um, I think that's so important, like nurturing and loving yourself in the process of it. Um, so that would be one, one thing that I need to work on. Second thing, um, to work towards being the best version of myself would be to continue reaching out for help. Um, I think that's just like advice for other people as well. Um, because you can't be the best version of yourself or work towards it without asking for help and learning from other people. And that's why I think it's so cool, like what you're doing, because you're getting to interview and learn how people do it, um, which will help guide you along the way that you become the mm -hmm. best version of yourself. And like, I've even learned stuff from you today. Um, connection, building relationships, vulnerability, asking for advice, um, learning how people do the way, do things the way that they do you'll be able to, to take from that and put that towards working towards the best version of yourself. Um, and then the third one would probably be, um, I like the mission statement one. Okay. Um, I love consistency and having a mission statement and, um, being consistent with that mission statement, because I think that not getting astray because then you're just always going to be comparing yourself and wondering if you're doing the right thing, but you have a mission statement. You feel good about it and you can change that mission statement whenever you want to. Um, my family, we each new year, my dad's really into this, um, but he's been really successful in his work and he writes his own mission statement each year on like what he's going to do personally, professionally, family, you know, relationships, and he categorizes it and then puts it into one mission statement and simplifying that and 
you know, keeping that in mind or posting it maybe like on your mirror or something. Um, that kind of helps a yeah. lot. So finding a mission statement that you believe in and keeping that fresh in your mind and yeah. continually working towards that. Yeah. And you can build a mission statement by looking at, you can look at a problem that you want to fix. You can look at a goal you want to achieve that year. You can look at something that you want to just do each day and is simplifying it. So maybe my mission statement would be like, I need to work towards learning how to meditate more, you know, like that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So Awesome. Well, that's all we got. I appreciate you uh, coming in for the interview. Thanks it was for awesome. Me. Yeah. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Now it's time to act. Leave a like and a comment on YouTube. Subscribe to that page. If you're on iTunes, leave it a five star review. Help the show move up the ranks so more and more people can get access to it. Feel free to take a screenshot of this episode and let me know you're listening on Instagram. Are you communicating what you're going through with others? Or are you just letting negative emotion and feelings fester inside of you? Taylor preaches the importance of getting it out there, realizing that you're not alone in the fight and linking arms with someone. Remember everyone, it's not about I, it's about we. And anything we want to get better in at life, we must have human connection. It does us no good to sit in the solitude of our own homes and worry about things that we can't control. So get off the bench, step onto the playing field, and start taking action on the things that you can control. Thanks so much for listening. Keep taking consistent action every single day. Now it's time to go out and upgrade yourself today to get closer and closer to your best you.